I think that I would probably want to to monitor training. I probably would be rolling with pretty much just a GPS and heart rate setup. I uh, would be pretty comfortable to run the pro the field program based off that, which would be cool. Gym wise, I'd be obviously interested in team builder and probably gym aware would be the two the main ones from a gym point of view. Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via our YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today... My guest is Nick Murray. He's the head of sports science at the Melbourne Football Club. And our key topic of discussion today will be applied sports science in the AFL. Everything you need to know when it comes to sports science. So for those strength conditioning coaches, sports physiotherapists, as well as future athletes that want to work in the, or play Australian rules football, make sure to tune in. If you've got any questions for those tuning in live, make sure to use the comment section. Before we go through Nick's intro, our mission here at Prepare Like a Pro is to empower aspiring athletes and staff with practical knowledge from some of the industry's most inspiring individuals and to strengthen the AFL community. If you like the show, please show support by following us on Instagram and subscribing to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube. Welcome, Nick, or I'll say Muzz, mate. We'll get straight into Nick, mate. How you going? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thanks for jumping on. We've had a couple of different forms of chats now. Zoom early in the week, which was all professional meeting. I've, I've interviewed you as one of my assignments in sports science and now a podcast interview, mate. So it's and, the modern yeah. world of communication, hey? Yeah, I feel like I've seen your head on my screen a fair bit, <laughs> fair bit more than I would have liked, but it's okay. So give us a bit of a, a background for those that are not aware of your work, mate, before we get into the, the meat of the conversation. Yeah, talk us about it, sort of beginning and through to up until now. Yeah, beautiful. So I, I kind of had a little bit of a funny career path. I, I probably finished school not quite knowing what I wanted to do post-school. I played tennis at a kind of semi-high level. And so I'm kind of always been interested in kind of going down the route of professional sport, whether it be playing or kind of working in it. So I kind of left school and, and was a bit stumped. So I just went to the, the classic generic exercise science degree. And then I got a little bit of the way into that and then probably thought halfway through it, maybe that I was going to pivot and kind of go into PE teaching and, and maybe thought that exercise science kind of wasn't for me. And it kind of got to the end of my degree. So in my third year, I managed to get my final placement up in Brisbane doing like a small kind of research project with the Bronco up here. Really, like really small, not not embedded or anything, but just kind of a small kind of intro type project into to looking at some research at a sporting club. And yeah, re- really enjoyed it. Yeah, really loved the time there and the whole, I guess, kind of research process around kind of generating your question, your hypothesis, collecting data, analyzing, and then kind of reporting back, I guess, your findings and, and your practical applications. And then kind of that whole that whole loop around giving feedback and then looking at my performance department change, what they do based off kind of the research workflow you'd been through. I found that real exciting, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is maybe a nerdy word to, to say. I just thought it was really cool how you could go and, and explore something that kind of hadn't been looked at before get a finding and then apply a change. I thought that that was really cool. So that kind of led me back down the working in sport path and then kind of went went on, worked, did my honours. So kind of went down the a research mode, did my honours with kind of GPS technology in baseball. So a little bit different. So went through that again, just kind of different research methods, different ways to, I guess, use use data to, to inform practice in sport. 
and then was lucky enough to get a PhD spot after that at the Brisbane Lions up here in oh, up in Brizzy, which is nice. Was able to do that, embedded there full time, kind of in the performance department, doing PhD and working as a sports scientist there full time. So I got to do both and, and was there for a while, which was cool. And then finished up there and spent a little bit of time at Vault working in a data science role. So obviously working with Vault, who are quite big in the sport and health tech space. I'm sure you would have would have heard of some of their products at, at some stage for everyone listening. Yeah. So I spent some time there and now kind of back back in the AFL down in Melbourne working at the D's. So that's kind of the 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 path. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice one, mate. It's actually interesting that the sports science units at the time didn't quite grab you. What why do you think until you started applying it in a research setting uh, in elite sport? Ma- I think maybe it was a lack of understanding of what it was and what it was like what it was in the field out there. Mm. I think maybe I think maybe the because it was pretty early days exercise science. Maybe it was quite the, dry. Yeah, it was a little bit dry, and maybe the the units weren't entirely preparing you for what that kind of looked like in the field. I think yeah. so. Maybe it was a yeah, not not quite a true reflection of of what it would be like, and maybe we just didn't know kind of what it would be like. And so getting that exposure was good. Obviously, there's a couple of of units that touch on it, but it's not quite the same as as being there and I guess feeling it for yourself. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think that's the the big one. And for those listening in, they're yeah, not too sure. They're studying exercise science. They're not too sure where they want to go. Or yeah, PE teacher, like you mentioned, is a common one. Be a personal trainer, more science yeah. side. How do you sort of make ends meet as you're growing up? Like naturally, the one is for, for strength and conditioning coaches. It's personal training in, in you know fitness gyms. Is that something that you gravitated towards as you're climbing yep. your way towards that full time role? Yep. 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 Yeah, yeah, definitely. So when when I was going through, I was worked in a gym, pretty pretty stock standard. But yeah, worked in a gym on the way through, and actually did tennis coaching on the side as well. So kind of yep. did those to to make end make ends meet. But yeah, the the S and C side of things was a pretty easy kind of pivot to fall into while we were kind of doing it. And I felt it kind of helped too because that was really the only time you were getting to do any form of programming, I guess, mm-hmm. because. Kind of that stage when I was working in the gym, I'd only been working with the clients, so I hadn't actually been at a team at that stage. So you hadn't had a chance to properly prescribe exercise for people. So if I didn't have those initial kind of PT, early S&C sessions, then I would have been pretty raw going into a sport team and not quite know knowing what was going on. I think it's all yep. well and good to have the knowledge of kind of what to do, but then how to actually apply that. Yeah, I think you've got to see it and feel it. I think yeah, it's really important. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And on the topic of, you know, it took a, little, well, it took a year or two for you to find where you wanted to, to go in the industry. Once you did know it was elite sport and more down the research and science side of things, how clear were you in terms of what sports you wanted to work in, specifically what roles, or how much was it very much just focusing on the sort of the role that you're currently in and just seeing where your journey sort of took you? Yeah, I think initially it was probably a little bit position specific. It was kind of like I, I didn't have a set interest in wanting to work anywhere, probably hence hence why my, my first proper exposure in my honours was in baseball. So it was kind of a, a little bit left field. I didn't really know anything about the sport at the time, but it was kind of you had your research methods and it didn't really matter where you were doing it. Um, it was mm-hmm. kind of more about applying your principles in whatever space you landed in. For me, that was baseball and then Australian rules football. So I just kind of fell out that way. Obviously, love love most sports and, and a bit of a f- avid fan of most things. So it wasn't too fussed, but yeah, it's the way it's worked out, it's just happened to be in the AFL. And publishing research papers, mate. I know you're a humble man, but you've you've now doing my masters. I've seen your name pop up a fair few times <laughs> on some on some good papers. 
how did you manage publishing papers while doing PhD, working elite sports? So from a, I guess, from a productivity point of view, any tips and tricks for S&Cs, sports scientists that want to yeah, get the most out of themselves? During those uh, early years? Yeah, well, I think the, the biggest thing is having a really supportive supervisor and, and getting along with them really well. My supervisor, Tim, he was a was a hard taskmaster, but was very, very fair, which I really respected. He kind of, his saying was he'd always match the effort that we put in as, as students. So he kind of put it back on us, which which was, mm-hmm. which is really fair, I think. So it was really good. So having that kind of support. And then the other one is, is being really self-driven. I think it's the, I often say to people, and I don't want it to come across the wrong way, I think like PhDs, uh, I think they're hard. Obviously, creating new research is hard, but I think the hardest part of the PhD is like the relentless nature of it. I think it's mm-hmm. just there's, there's always something to do, There's the, whether it be whether you're collecting data, analyzing data, reading new research, writing papers, doing ethics, responding to reviewers. Like There's always something to do. And it's kind of like if you can manage to stay on top of it, then I think it's it's not too bad. But as soon as you kind of let things slide for a little bit, I think it can become a bit of a hard mountain to climb. So I think being really well prepared, having clear questions and kind of clear milestones, I think to kind of keep you on your path because it's a, yeah, depending on how broad your PhD project is, it's, it's a little bit easy to get lost and spend a lot of time doing things that, that aren't actually going to help or move you towards finishing your PhD, which, and it's hard because they all may be very interesting things that you're, that you're doing or you're looking at, but it might not actually be getting you to your end goal. So being really clear in, in your milestones and I guess my, making or marking out your progressions and kind of ticking them off as you go, I think is really, really important. And how did you come to, one, get Brisbane Lions on board with your PhD? Was that something that they created the role you applied for? And, and talk us also through your topic of, of choice in, in your research, how that sort of came about. Yeah, so they, so they had the position available, so I kind of just applied for it and was able to get in there. The research looked at a little bit of some early stuff around kind of load injury relationships and how we can model data to kind of forecast injury risk. It was a really interesting topic, a really interesting time for the research coming through. There wasn't a whole heap published at the time, so it was kind of foraging our own path a little bit. If we had our time again, there's potentially some things we do differently, but I think that's kind of how you go with research. You kind of do do the best with what you have and what you know at the time, and then you kind of push on and forge your way ahead with that. And I guess we're all just trying to to learn more. Obviously, the, the topic is so complex and, and dynamic. It's really difficult to know everything. There's not too many people that know a whole heck of a lot, to be fair. The, the human body is a very complex beast, particularly in the load and injury space. So yeah, I found it really interesting, which is cool. You probably get to a point where you do all this research and your PhD, you, you publish some nice papers and maybe you, you kind of leave being not more unsure of what your findings are or, or what it looks like, but it's you kind of begin to understand how much you don't actually know yeah. around what we're doing, yeah, which is humbling, but cool at the same time, I think. Yeah. And what were you, some of your biggest learnings or, or areas of, of growth as a from a practitioner point of view working in life? I think, I think the biggest things that we can take away from the PhD is the, the importance of consistency, I think, mm-hmm. in your training is, is uh, I think, one of the, the cornerstones of any good training program, whether it be a conditioning program or a gym program now, I think that consistency and the, I guess, maybe even the simplicity in your programming done and executed really, really well, I think are the the two main things. I guess a lot of the findings that that I found and that we kind of seen, we see coming out now and repeated in other studies is around this whole ideology of of chronic load, which you build through consistency and you, you build it through 
I guess, doing simple-based training, so kind of progressive overload, managing those training loads up, obviously not spiking loads too too high too quickly, kind of all those kind of common sense principles, being diligent enough to stick to them day in, day out. They may seem a little bit boring at times, but sticking yeah, sticking to them, I think it's it's kind of the whole the whole thing around excellence with teams. It's like um, a thing that makes an excellent team is their ability to execute basics time and time again. But I think that's very much similar to how we need to prescribe our our programs as well and just day in, day out, prescribe well and execute it well. And if you do that, I think you can you can take care of a lot of things. Obviously there's a lot of other intricate day-to-day things you can look at, but as an overarching principle, I think that's a, a pretty good one um, to stand by. Yeah, 100%. And you mentioned you know, your progression through different roles and responsibilities throughout your yep. academic side of things as well as, as work experience. Along the way, have you had some strong influences or mentors, if you like, that have helped help you along your journey? Yeah, definitely. I think early days PhD-wise, definitely Tim, my PhD supervisor, was amazing in that space. Since then, I think my probably my career has, has pivoted a little bit more into kind of a data science path. So I've gone back post-PhD to do kind of post-grad work in data science by just upskill kind of in that area. So probably seeing some people in, in that space has been really cool. So guys kind of outside of sport who no one here would know, I think is really cool because I guess in sport, we we think that we're data rich and we think that we're advanced with data. But when you look in some other industries, we're actually quite poor and we're, we're actually a long way behind what some other industries are kind of doing. So I think that's been cool to kind of see that. And then I guess, apply some of those principles from other fields into sport, particularly around kind of data and how we do data in sport. I think it's probably the biggest influence or the biggest thing that's kind of changed how I do things now. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So for for those listening in that do have that belief that elite sport's the pinnacle in everything, training as well as science, what are some industries that are really something that you look towards in terms of the pinnacle, if you call that, or those that are doing it at the, the highest level. Uh, yeah, well, I think my my family background, so my family worked in finance. So looking at stuff kind of in finance and mm-hmm. corporate, even insurances around, particularly around, and this is more talking about kind of how we do data, nothing to do with prescribing exercise or anything like our conditioning course, yeah. programs, but, but more around that, around being able to store data well, utilize data well, forecast, and then be actually driven by data and evidence. I think that they're really good in that space and they have to be because they're multi-billion dollar industries that rely on good data. Um, yeah. And so we, sport obviously, I don't know if it struggles, but it's just a little bit different around collecting data on human physiology is just so... Hard, hard to do. Like it's not not an easy thing to get good data on humans, particularly in the field We're working with the team. I think it's hard to get good data, and then it's obviously hard to make good predictions or hard to to implement good things based off data that may or may not be any good. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the biggest learnings that we can take are around identifying what is good data that we can collect. How do we know that it's valid and reliable and repeatable? And then I guess then implement that kind of data. Yep. So they're probably the biggest biggest growths because I think my kind of role now is is pivoted more from a traditional sports science role and it's more kind of the hybrid sport data science role, which is cool, which is exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we'll go to that in a little bit more detail in a couple of minutes. Just a little bit more context questions about your background, yep. and let's dive into yep. the good stuff. But 
career highlights, mate? What are some career highlights that sort of spring front of mind that you're proud of and yeah, happy that you got to be involved in? I definitely finished the PhD. It was really cool. Yeah, probably yeah, I probably thought at at some stages throughout it that I might not get there. Yeah. How long yeah, did so it take? Just the three years. Well done. Well, that's yeah. quick and elite sport. Yeah, so so I got through. It was certainly some busy times there, but getting through that was was pretty awesome. And I guess being a part of Brisbane too was good. Kind of when I started there, we were maybe at the bottom of the ladder, and the team wasn't overly successful. So I saw a lot of change go through players and staff, and kind of being there and, and seeing that whole club kind of develop. I think mm-hmm. it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool to be a part of. So they're probably the two main ones. And then obviously moving to to Melbourne is really exciting to come down and, and have an opportunity to be part of some team success. The kind of small role that we have in the team yeah it's exciting to be part of and to work with good people yeah thanks for sharing man and on the flip side challenges that you've faced that you've significantly grown from either from a professional or personal point of view yeah i think working in sport is definitely challenging i guess the the whole ideology of chasing excellence every day i think can can wear down on you a little bit mm-hmm. <laughs> so i think yeah there's times where it's it's gotten hard particularly when i was kind of going through my phd as well and juggling kind of both elements it definitely gets a little bit a little bit tricky because obviously the the clubs want value from you but you kind of need to look after yourself and and do your phd because at the end, end of the day it's your phd it's not the club's phd so i guess man- managing those relationships i guess around trying to take care of the club who's taking care of you but also trying to take care of yourself i think that yeah. that's challenging particularly when you obviously want to do everything you can to do the best role you can and, and to help the team. So yeah, I guess finding the balance, I think it was probably early on tricky, a little bit easier now. Now you've kind of been around for a little bit longer, you know what to prioritize and when, I think. But yeah, early days, that was definitely very challenging. And then I guess it even kind of questioned whether I would ever come back into sport kind of once I got out. Obviously, I made the decision to come back. Yeah, there were times where I was just happy to go and do work in a different kind of data world, whether it be finance or in corporate business or whatever that looks like. Mm. I was kind of at a point where I was happy to be out of sport because it is it is a little bit relentless. It's good. It's good to work with good people, I guess, wherever you are and, and sport's no different. That's actually a good topic that I've never asked someone on the show yet. But from a, I guess, strength and conditioning point of view or physios, you know, when they don't work in sport, there's, there's the clinic and working in gyms. But as a scientist, it's quite a specific niche. Is there roles out there where you, know, you obviously worked at Vald? Was that very much consulting sporting clubs? So still in the bracket of sport, or was it more your business finance no, sort so, of so, role? So it was still so the bold role was was it was quite unique. It was quite cool actually. So it was more of a data science role, but it was a lot of kind of it was split kind of a little bit between I guess data engineering, back end data work, so kind of pure data science work, which we may you may not see in sport. So there was a little bit of that, but then. There was also, I had a whole heap of data consulting with um, predominantly sport teams and also with, I guess, some physio clinics, some EP clinics, more who were using, I guess, the tech that traditionally started in sport, say, so things like the Nordboard, Force Rain, Force Deck, stuff like this, well, whilst it started in sport, has now is now evolving and is, is moving into, I guess, the healthcare space, is moving into the tactical space, moving into work cover, being able to, I guess, see the tech utilized across a whole different cohort of people that I'd never seen before or, or never really worked with that much. That was really exciting. So it's kind of had a little bit of both, which was cool. What other, like, I guess, courses outside of your degrees are helpful? You mentioned learning and leaning off other practitioners or other scientists uh, yeah. outside of the sport of industry, but are there any courses that you'd recommend, either online courses or books or documentaries? 
Yeah, it's funny in the data space, there's there's lots. So I did a postgrad degree through JCU purely because I kind of wanted to just formalize that whole that whole process and kind of do it all. But outside of that, I definitely think YouTube is an amazing resource. I think there's there's lots and lots of good stuff out there to to literally to watch and people will go through big data and code projects and we'll kind of talk through what they're doing. I think that that's really good for me. I, I like to learn by kind of seeing something done and, and seeing someone work through it and then I kind of go and apply it. So I think YouTube was really good for that. Um, yeah. And then I guess to supplement that, there's another website called Kaggle, which I'm not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but it's like, it's mainly a US-based data site, but they do, obviously they've got lots of freely or publicly available data sets on there, which you can, they do like competitions and stuff where you can get data and, and you build models and then you evaluate your models to see who has the best ones and you kind of get prizes and stuff, but a little bit silly, but stuff like that I found really cool because it's kind of like, yeah, I can go to YouTube, I can see how someone codes, if, if I have any questions on what they do, like whether what model, what type of model they're building or, or how they're selecting their features to go in the models. I can go and look up. There's so many resources online. I can go and look it up and then I can go to Kaggle and then I can try and apply that kind of machine learning stuff. I've just watched someone do, apply it to a totally fresh data set and build out my own model. Yeah, right. I found that's in the data space that I think that is by far the, the best way to learn because I think you can get a little bit confusing just seeing data there and not knowing what to do with it yeah uh, so i think if you've never seen it before i think actually seeing someone go through it because i think yeah we like a lot of people in, in sport and in a lot of sports science roles they kind of got the vibe of what they want to do data wise mm -hmm. like they, mm -hmm. they kind of know what they're trying to do but then actually going in and doing it mm -hmm. particularly if they're going into a coding language being able to have the actual skill to be able to do that a lot of people may or may not possess right so then yeah being able to actually see it then it kind of there's a lot of light bulb moments like oh yeah so that's how you do that or yeah that's how you apply this or stuff like that oh yeah i found youtube is probably one of the the better ones it's actually a really good podcast shout youtube video sorry shout out to, to pat which is tidy x which is a really good youtube channel two okay, really cool guys no they're, they're really cool just go through cool kind of sport projects yeah they're really good right and it's sport specific as well love that Connecting the dots, that's great. Well, that's a good segue, yep. mate, in terms of applied sports science. Take us through a bit of a background over the last decade into, from an AFL point of view. Obviously, there's a lot to, to go in terms of growth as the industry, but how, how much change has sort of evolved over the last 10 years that you've seen? Yeah, well, it's definitely just the, the access to data now is, I don't want to say it's unprecedented, but it's certainly a lot easier than what it used to be. Even in the time I've been around, I remember... Tim, my PhD supervisor, always used to talk about when he went through his PhD and they had to do kind of manual coding of GPS information. So it would take him days and days to analyze a game to kind of get matched demand. So obviously there's there's been, GPS has probably been around the last 10 years and has kind of continued to develop and the tech's gotten better and better. But yeah, so, so many more technologies now that make it so easy to collect information and then easy to, I guess, get it on the back end and, and use it. And mm -hmm. I think that's the, that's the biggest change, which... I think is is good and has bad elements as well around it's it's really easy to collect lots and lots and lots of information, but just because you can collect lots of information doesn't mean that it's all useful. I think there can be a lot of a lot of noise out there, particularly coming back to to kind of talking about some of the my PhD findings around the complexity of the human body and the complexity of performance and the complexity of injury risk, I think. There's so much noise in our data. It's really difficult to kind of cut through that to mm -hmm. determine what 
A, what you value, and then B, what's important. Yeah, so I think whilst yeah, whilst it's easy to get data, I think we nearly take it for granted how easy it is to get data now. And then maybe it, I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe it's led to to a little bit of a lack of understanding of what all the data is because it's so easy to get so much of it now. I think that's why it's, it's really important. And I think we spoke about this the other day with our with our planning around knowing what you're measuring and why you're measuring it. I think you have to keep coming back to that. Otherwise, you can just get lost in a sea of data that may not actually main match yeah yeah 100 yeah it's uh, it's it's so interesting that filter that you mentioned that you know there's a fair bit of noise in the data and to, to recognize what's uh, firstly what's reliable what what test are you going to use and then from there how you're going to be able to use the data uh, over your years what are some of your biggest mistakes that you've either made yourself or your departments have made that you know or even the industry has made since you bring in new technology and technology's yeah. evolved and uh, how have you sort of that seen that transfer in terms of the practice from a either conditioning prescription or strength loading? And I think sometimes being too confident with data, I think mm-hmm. maybe too confident is not the right word. Maybe an over reliance on certain elements of data, and so maybe needing to branch out and get a little bit more context or a little bit more information. As a, yep. I think that they're probably a lot of the mistakes. Most of the mistakes I think come from that around just not having enough context or not yeah, not bringing in enough information to then make your decision. You're probably too reliant on a couple of streams of information when you should probably get some more in over the top. Yeah. I think that that's kind of the, the main one, I reckon. And then I think the other one is maybe sometimes we get too, too rigid in our, I'm not sure if it's player flagging is the right terminology, but sometimes be a little bit too, yeah, too rigid or too firm on, I guess, our rules. If that makes sense, I think we all want to make these hard and fast rules for, I don't know, for so many things. Like we want, we want players to be this strong, or we want players to be this fit, or we want it's players easy to if jump it's black and white. this high. Yeah, yeah. And same with them flagging guys. It's like, okay, well, if the player is X amount down, then they must be at an increased risk. Which, yes, they are. But just because someone is at an increased risk doesn't actually mean that anything's going to happen. Because we found a lot of work in in our early research around, like we found these things that heightened injury risk, and it was like a, the things around like a tenfold injury risk. But then that might actually move you from a, a baseline risk of two percent to twenty percent, say, which a tenfold a tenfold jump is significant. It's it's a really large increase in risk. But then, yeah, people, I guess you get caught on this tenfold notion. But then you actually need to think of it the other way. It's like, okay, well. There's only a let's say there's a twenty percent arbitrary risk of something happening. Then it's like, well, on the inverse of that, there's an eighty percent chance that this player will be fine, and there's an eighty percent chance that they'll get through a training session and they'll actually benefit from it because they'll they'll train through, they'll get positive physical adaptations from getting through a hard training session, and then that probably protects them moving forward because they've developed their physical qualities from doing a session. So yeah, yeah. So and it's hard though because we we all want some form of threshold or we, we want some something to work from because yeah we, we just we don't we love data and we love using it and then it's hard to to love all those things but then also embrace the uncertainty at the same time so being too rigid in that space i think and particularly being data heavy you can you can definitely take the person like out of it which i think you shouldn't um it's kind of you you do all your the information like you, you gather all the information gather your data which then i think best practice then leads to a conversation with the player and sell our our boss the hot forms manager of the days 
I think has a, a really, really good balance around being able to, to take data and information and then use that to drive a conversation or to inform a discussion he's having with a coach or a player. Because I think that's, yeah, I, ultimately, I think that is my role in the performance department is around like en- enabling people to have really good discussions because they have good data. I think it's not there to dictate what we do or decide what we do. I think it's to inform people. Um, and then people that can use that information to make the best possible decision, whatever that may be, whether it be in return to play, whether it be in a match committee, whether it be having conversation around whether we think a player can play a certain position based off the physical demands, like whatever that may be. I think it's just about giving information. No, well said, mate. And that's something that's a good way to sort of loop it back to how you mentioned that the data sort of provide uh, some information, but the context is key and seeking that context. So practical takeaways for, for coaches and scientists. So other ways of getting context when something's been flagged, if you call it that, ask the athlete how they feel, what are some other sort of numbers or other conversations would you be taking into account? Is it looking at video analysis on how the drill yeah, was sort of done? Like, yeah, it definitely, definitely can. But I know a really common one that people use is around counter open jump for neuromuscular fatigue testing. I think it's a really common test that a lot of uh, toads do for the post-game. It's a, it's a really good marker of, fatigue and then obviously how a player then returns to a baseline neuromuscular state throughout a week. So I think something around that is obviously a really big dictator of the the data quality from a CMJ is how the actual person jumps and how you perform the CMJ. Mm -hmm. I think jump technique obviously has a significant influence around the biggest one around whether someone like how high they tuck their knees can dictate around, around their flight time. And then we look at flight time, contact time, as one of our biggest things. So then jump technique is really heavily, heavily influencing one element of that ratio. Mm-hmm. So then you might, you might start to see some skew, particularly in younger athletes who may not be, have, be really familiar with the task. They might alter jump mechanics week to week, whereas a more experienced player who's been doing it for years may be a little bit more consistent in technique. But if you see these radical changes in technique, it's going to change your data massively for no reason other than maybe they were talking to someone while they were doing the jump, maybe they weren't kind of weren't focusing properly or mm-hmm. whatever it might be, then you see these things in the data and then it might be a really big flag because it, they might be like, oh, gee, like what, what's happened here? Like they had a really poor jump. They have obviously not recovering well. We might go, if we don't have a conversation or we don't watch the jump, then we might just want to modify training. But then the person could be fine. So it's like I think then that should drive. And because if you ask the person, they'd be like, oh, no. I'm fine. And then you, if, you, if you modify them without having that conversation, then you're actually taking an opportunity away from them to get better at their sport, which is what they need to do. Like that's kind of our job is to, to let guys, enable guys to be better bullers or better at whatever sport they're doing. So yeah, that's just one kind of example, I guess. You mentioned something there that stood out to me in terms of changing technique, like from the coaches and, and scientists actually conducting the testing what's some important tips for for those practitioners in terms of like using cues you know do you change your cues between reps if you're feeling like they're not actually getting the technique right to to ensure they're getting good technique and then you can those reps prior like talk us about facilitating tests like this i would think the the first and foremost is the obviously the consistency in your Mm -hmm. cueing i think particularly if you have different people running the tests there's been i've definitely seen situations previously where you you might emphasize something different in a cue which will alter how the test is performed 
um, so having that consistency if different people are doing it. But then I think a, a lot of the time when I've done it, it, it's more you just engage the athlete prior to the test. It's, it might only be like a, a five-second, five, ten-second conversation with an athlete prior to them doing it, but it's like you're nearly, and again, sorry, this is, is based on hopefully we've educated the athlete prior to this on why we're doing the test and why we think it's important. But then mm-hmm. I think that little five to 10 second re-engagement of a player before they do the test around, you could even ask them like, a, how, like how are you feeling on a pre-test to get them thinking about what they're about to do. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think it's good. As I, I'd, I'd probably prefer that as opposed to altering my cues. I'd probably try and yeah, engage them prior. So that kind of scenario that I talked about before, if someone just rolls on and just jumps, not even thinking about it, you'd want to try and avoid that. So I think if you can just engage them for five seconds before that kind of switch them on to a test and, and try and be really diligent with that because it's really easy. If you've got 45 guys jumping in, in an hour, say, like it's really easy to just roll through one by one and get a little bit blasé, I guess, with mm-hmm. your testing. But coming back and that the whole engagement piece, I guess, solidifies to the athlete that you actually care about the data that you're collecting because we care about it, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't, we wouldn't collect it. So I think that that little engagement, and obviously it comes around a whole lot of education around actually teaching a player what it is, why we do it, why we value that information, because I think obviously fosters a buy-in as opposed to if athletes had no idea why they were doing test X, then they're not going to be that invested in it. Whereas if we can educate and then engage and then they can see an outcome off the back of it, I think that's a really nice loop and I think that's more important than your technical cueing or altering your technical cueing, I should yep. say. And you, and you mentioned earlier about, you know, sports science is about guiding informed discussions. Has there been a circumstance where the data is showing pretty high risk? The athlete says, no, I'm good. You know, it's grand final week. They're, they're feeling good no matter what's going on. And sure enough, the player gets injured and there's, you know, I imagine a thought process in, or oh, geez, should, we have, should it not even be an open discussion? You know, so somewhere where maybe the science yeah. actually did suggest that they're at high yeah. risk and sure enough, it actually happened. Yeah, de- yeah, yeah, definitely happened. But on the flip side, there's a lot of times where it's been a player might have lots of flags and, and do a session and succeed and have a really good session. So there's, to be fair, there's probably been a lot more of them than of the other ones where it's, yeah, it's yeah. like a, the a humans and, and the body is, is definitely a lot more capable than I think you initially give it credit for. I think like, mm-hmm. yeah, you just kind of think, oh, like I'm a bit sore, like maybe I should, like maybe I should take it easy or sometimes you should. And this comes back to the complexity and dynamic nature of it. And sometimes you should, but sometimes you could be fine. A whole lot of the time you, you'll be okay and you actually get that physical benefit. So it's really hard. And then I think that ties into what I was saying around being a little bit too rigid with, I guess, your thresholds or your flagging systems. I think it's, you have to embrace the uncertainty a little bit. So I think bringing athletes in, I think that's a, a big philosophy we have as a department is around bringing that lead in as a, a bit of a stakeholder in their own physical journey, for, for lack of a better word, because I, I think definitely we've been from early days in my career where you, you get a bit too rigid on the data, then athletes might get a bit frustrated if you're modifying them versus if you not ignore a flag, but if you push through a flag and something happens, people might get annoyed at the same time, whereas if you can actually engage them beforehand, and I'm not sure you need to go and tell every athlete who you, that you think is high risk. And I, I don't think you need to go and say, hey, mate, like, just want to let you know I've got you as very high risk of 
injury yeah. today. Like I'm not yeah. sure you I'm not sure you're saying that. But I think that's something that can be shared across a performance department or coaches and just more more something like, oh hey, this this player, he's down in these areas. Did someone touch just touch base with him before training, see how he's going. Yeah, I, I think that's that's the most important. And yeah, it's the whole the whole concept of embracing uncertainty. Just using data as information to then get you to a discussion, I think. Uh, I think it's too grey to just be a black and white around certain flagging, meaning a certain thing. I, th- I think it's not quite that simple, whilst we would all like to be. I think it then moves to be you, you need to make your flagging systems quite smart, I guess, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. To, know, to know who to talk to when. I think that's kind of the best sports science system is, is you know what's valid and reliable data, you collect it well, you collect it regularly, and then essentially using that data to give you information on what athletes you need to be having a discussion with at what time of the year, I think, because it's obviously going to shift and you're going to need to speak to different people, different days, depending on sleep quality, on match physical profiles, like whether guys are having higher match loads, whatever that may be, that's going to fluctuate throughout the year. So I think the data just needs to get you to a place where you know who to talk to on a given day, which you're not always going to get there. But I think that's kind of the the goal of what we try to do. And for a, a sports scientist listening in early on in their development phase, what, are, what would you feel are some non-negotiables to be equipped with when you're about to take on an internship at an AFL club or, or not even an internship, but you, that maybe there's a, there's, a, there's a goal there that you want to be able to make an impact at, at an yeah. AFL club one day? What would you think would be some yeah. uh, skills? I think the big, the biggest thing would be it's kind of tied together like a pro proactiveness and transparency with your data and information. So it's you, you if you're a, if you're just starting out, no doubt you'll be collecting some sort of data on players, and someone will want kind of feedback on it somewhere along the being, I guess, proactive to collect good data. So whatever that looks like for you, whether whether that means that if you haven't used the system before, whether that means you going out and doing a trial run and making sure that you you can collect the data well. So when it comes to your actual data collection, that runs well because we, we need to collect good data at the source. Otherwise, it doesn't really mean anything anyway. So that, that might be one example of what being proactive looks like. But I think proactive then secondarily is getting data back to people. So let, let's say it's an intern at a VFL club, you might have 10 GPS units. So, so being knowing what to do to collect that information, knowing then that the athletes are probably going to want to know what they've done. They, they're wearing something on their back. So it's like, oh, well, why am I wearing it? Like, how far do I run? How fast do I run? Like, all, all these really generic questions that players ask, really, really basic stuff. But then being able to give that information to them um, mm-hmm. pretty quickly, like mm-hmm. kind of being able to collect it well, disseminate that information back to a player or a coach. And I guess the transparency is around maybe longitudinal stuff, but even session by session data, like being able to to get that back and essentially get the data and information just off your own laptop screen, like getting it in front of other eyes, I think is super important. Like I definitely know when I first started out, had very, very limited data skills when I very first started and it would take so long to go through and analyze data from a session. It would be like you'd uh, a training session would happen in the morning and then by six o'clock, I might have all the data and everything done for a session. And it's like, well, by six o'clock, everyone's left, the coaches are gone, the next training session is already planned. 
And it's like, well, what, like, what am I even doing? Like, that we're not actually using that data we're collecting because I can't get it out in a timely manner to be used because sport moves so quickly, particularly in a preseason period. It's like mm. you're trying, you're training four or five times a week. So it's, you, you turn around between sessions is really, really quick. So it's, yeah, you need to be, yeah, you need to be doing as, as much as you can. And, and whether that be upskilling at data to, to get better at, analyzing data quickly or whether it be building a, a code out or building a script out that can do it automatically or whatever that looks like finding a way to quickly get the information you've collected off your own laptop screen and get it in the eyes of your hpm a coach a player and kind of closing that feedback loop i think it is by far the most important thing and then you nearly protect yourself as a practitioner too because it's you could be doing some amazing work on your own screen but if no one else sees it and it doesn't get used or doesn't get implemented then like it doesn't matter how good it is like it's not going to be used and it's not going to influence anything so that means it's probably shit so it's so important to, to get it out and get it used by people that that would be the thing and i know it's really hard when you're starting out and getting information in front of people and and maybe feeling a little bit daunted or kind of maybe you don't know everything about the data you're collecting anything like that i think it's it's still important to put that information out there and just get it out to start those conversations because people find data interesting. Like people like looking at stuff. Like players like looking at information about themselves. Physios, SNCs like looking at data as well. Like everyone enjoys looking at data. However, they look at it. Some some people have a, a very basic likening of it, and other people like to get kind of into the nuts and bolts of it all. But everyone, I think, enjoys looking at it at some level in mm. the industry. So getting that information out is so important because. Yeah, if it stays on your own laptop, then it's not you can't be enjoyable for you as a person because you're not you're not actually making a change. You're not actually getting your data out to be used. Yeah, so I think that is by far the most important thing. Just get just get it out. Just get something out there for people to say. Uh, that's great advice. Thank you for sharing, mate. It's a, it's a good insight for. Yeah, obviously you've seen a lot of different programs and and been in the position. So for someone that hasn't got that experience to get a bit of foresight and how to upskill themselves and make these development pathways or, or working at lower levels, whether it be juniors or, or community level, a bit more of an impact for them later on. So yeah. from, on a uh, different note, if you were to, let's say a new AFL team, the Tasmania team, and you've been yeah. handed the, the sports science program, you got an endless budget, yeah. but also the football department for whatever reason is endless too. So what would be the end, you know, the optimal sports science department in terms of, you know, some you're the head and then some assistants that are helping you. How many and who, at what roles, I guess, would they sort of take on? And and yeah, what equipment would you want to have? For- yeah, good question. I think that I would probably want to to monitor training. I probably would be rolling with pretty much just a GPS and heart rate setup. I uh, would be pretty comfortable to run the pro the field program based off that, which would be cool. Gym wise, I'd be obviously interested in team builder and probably gym aware would be the two the main ones from a gym point of view. And then outside of that, I think it gets a little bit funny outside of that. I think like I would probably, as someone who's moved more into a data space, I would probably value having a like a pure data science, data engineer person in our in maybe the football department, not necessarily the performance department. But what I would their that, role look like? Like what? So I think that, sort of so I think, day-to-day. Yeah, so I think their role is is I guess handling your data architecture. I guess I think they're they're someone who understands all the different data inputs. So data we might we might collect GPS data, we might collect heart rate 
We might have team builder. We might have gym aware. We might have medical information. We might have screening information. So we might have force decks. We might have Norboard force frame. So obviously all this data has to go somewhere. Uh, yeah. So I think it's, it's their role to kind of set up the backend architecture and then they're, they're really important then in, I guess, building out a really solid data framework. I think we're starting to see a little bit more of it in the APL is probably the, the biggest uptake, maybe the MLB as well, looking at hiring these specific data roles in sport. I think having that is really important because then it's A, it services your program because we all have lots of, pro- lots of questions around the program and, and monitoring athletes day to day. But then I think we also have a lot of, let's say, their their ongoing larger projects or like questions that we're trying to answer as a department with our data. I think if you don't have data stored well, then it's really difficult to do those kinds of things. And kind of speaking on how quickly sport moves before, I think it, it can take so long. <laughs> if you don't if you don't have your data structured and set up well, then it can actually be quite logistically difficult to do anything with it. If it's not stored well, it, it can be really, really hard. So I think they will, will kind of come in and, and nearly become, I guess, your athlete management system person. You, you free them up to do the data stuff and then you have your sports scientist who is around in, I guess, collecting data, so ensuring that it's really collected well. So they're kind of the person at, at the source, so at the front line, making sure that we're collecting really good information to then go into this framework or architecture that a data engineer or data architecture is built. And then it's probably then from there, it's like a a collaboration between sports science, kind of data science type setup to then work on, okay, how do we get this information back out? Like who needs to see what? How do they want to see it? Because even within, if you look at purely just GPS, right? So it's like you collect sessional data on all these different bands. So let's just say we look at total distance and high-speed running and maybe a player load. So we have these three things and it's like, okay, we get session by session data and then it's like, okay, well, what's important? Like is how big today's session is, is that important or is that important relative to how big my last session was or is it important to how big my last week was or is it important into how big my next week is going to be? And then it's like, then it gets to an individual level and it's like, okay, well, this player has done X amount more than the group average. Like, is that fine? Do I need to modify him? Like that session is bigger for him. It's bigger than the group, but is it bigger than his own historical data? So then it's like, there's, there's so many different ways you can slice, like literally just one source of information, just looking at GPS data. It's like, there's so many ways that you can get context around it. It's like, okay, well, then you need to work with people around, okay, well, how should we look at it? What, what, what's important? Like is, is, is it important in terms of if, if we look at max velocity exposure, say, so it's like, is it important how many exposures I got today? Well, it, it could be important, but it probably needs to be relative to how many you had last week or last session or how many you're going to have in a game. So it's like then if you can store your data well, then you go through a little bit of a shared process around scoping out what people need. So I think the sports science role obviously has the domain expertise that knows how to collect the data, knows kind of knows and, and knows what it feels like, I guess. So they can work with SNCs and, and physios and doctors and HBMs around what they want to look at. I think, yeah, the, the biggest role I think that sports science moves into now, particularly in team sports, is figuring out what 
people value. Like you, you nearly need to hold their hand a little bit to try and guide them to their own source. I think even we were speaking the other day around building some stuff out. It's like you need to have that shared journey and mm. get a shared investment and a shared buy-in. Otherwise, your data just becomes your data in a database, maybe getting used sometimes, maybe not getting used at all, which is of no benefit to anyone. Whereas yeah. if you can get that set it up well, so have a really sound infrastructure to then enable you to to work quickly and build good usable reports that are getting out timely and are getting out to the right people. And again, giving the information to people to have those discussions, whether it be with athletes, players, coaches, whatever it is, I think it's all like it's all this big kind of happy loop. But de- definitely having someone with some data expertise in the football department, I think is so important. Now, I think in the next five years, I would dare say, guess that most teams are going to have someone in that space. I'd be very surprised if they didn't. It's definitely starting to shift that way now. So I think that, yeah, that's important. And then you maybe have an assistant or two to help with your data collection kind of on the ground and on the floor, I think. Yeah, I think sometimes we have a role to play kind of in the gym and and collecting data in the gym. I think we can certainly help in. Principles are the same. The tests are just different, right? Like when you're collecting data, you just want to make sure that you're getting good quality data at the source. And then that allows you to do everything else, I guess. Yeah, 100%. It's something that would be interesting to see where it does move. But you mentioned like a data scientist, an engineer, almost sounds like a model of a high performance manager. And then they've got their team of people at the coalface, you know, working that program with the athletes. Yep. Could would, Is that how you sort of see that model working? And also, it's a real specialty. These these people are in these roles. Would they necessarily have to have a sport background, do you think, to be able to manage yeah, that? No, I certainly don't think they would have to have a sport background. I, I think you merely want them to not have a sport background. I, I think it's irrelevant. I think that the whole, because they're, they're coming from, they're, they're guided by, I guess, data principles and, and data is data, right? So it's like they can work with domain experts around what data we're collecting, but that I guess the data infrastructure side of things is is pretty set. Mm-hmm. So I think that you can definitely teach someone domain expertise and domain knowledge, but I think it, it's always good to have, I'm of the opinion that it's good to have fresh eyes on your data because they kind of can nearly come in without any preconceived bias, which we probably have just from being around information. We probably know what we think is important and sometimes we can get blinded by it. It's like the the whole coach's eye discussion. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. coach's eye is is great and can be amazing and can definitely see things that data can't, vice versa. It can also miscategorize and get things wrong, miss things. It's like it's the double-edged sword. So I think definitely that wouldn't have to have sport knowledge or a sport background, I don't think. And would they, could they potentially manage that role remotely? Potentially, with, with how the world's going i think yeah definitely i think particularly with how good communication is now across zooms teams these kinds of things i think you, you can but again it, it probably goes back to that advice i had for for an internal for a young sports science person it's about just getting stuff in front of people so so not necessarily waiting until it's perfect to show someone i think it, the same way i'd say a gps intern to just get some information in front of a coach same would be a data engineer or a data architect just get get something in front of a HPM or a, a general manager of footy to show them what you're doing and be really transparent because it's so easy in a data role. I and mean, I still get challenged with this every day to 
get this to put your stuff out there. And I I like things to be really clean and well built and structured. And so yeah. it's, so, it's sometimes a challenge for me to send stuff to people when I'm, I know that it might not be perfect. But it's like you're better off getting something there, get that feedback, get it from someone. Just yeah. just get just get it there because that's that's more important because you're not helping anyone if you're just kind of hoarding your data and not showing anyone. So just kind of just get it there. So getting stuff in front of people is super important because it, I think it, it's also easy, to, the flip side, it's also easy for someone who, say, doesn't understand the data stuff. So I think there's, like even in our department, I'm sure there's a lot of people who don't know what I do on a day-to-day basis. Like they don't know the intricate, like the intricate parts of my role, just like I don't know the intricate parts of other roles. So it's like if, if you're not seeing that information, you know, if you're not seeing it every day, you might not, yeah, like not that you're going to question someone, but you might be like, oh, like, well, I wonder what they're doing. Like, I wonder what they're working yeah. on. Then the data space, it's why it's so important to just get stuff to people, like have stuff in shared drives, have have shared reports, have shared dashboards, like just have stuff out there to then generate. Because I, I think that data information is going to be, outside of talking about players, I think talking about data and information is going to be the biggest thing that a performance department does. Because we're we're all becoming so data reliant in in what we do. So if we're not talking about acutely managing a player, we're probably talking about some data or information that we've collected. So we just got to get get stuff out there, and it'll generate so much discussion in your department, and it'll be really really healthy, really beneficial. Gets people on the same page. People then can start to understand why certain decisions are being made. I think that's that's maybe something I've come up, come across in the past around not knowing why certain decisions have been made because I haven't seen the data, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. So it's yep. so that the whole idea of you you don't want to operate in the shadows in your performance department. So you want to be clear and transparent. And if people can see the data and they can see, I guess, why you're making those decisions, then you can start to see the patterns or the footprints, I guess, of, of why people do what they do. So if it's your HPM modifying conditioning, say, so everyone's got their plan, we might modify two people on the fly because of I don't know, excess high-speed running, say. So we might modify them on the fly. Then physio might walk over and say, oh, like how come player X and Y were pulled out? And if the data's right there, it's really clear to say, oh, well, this was their upper threshold for today. They've reached it. We're happy with where they're at. They're done. Then it's like, oh, no worries. And then that physio can then go in, onto a shared dashboard and, and see, okay, well, what was the plan for everyone today? What were their what were their individual goals? What were their individual thresholds? And it's really transparent and really clear. Yep. Yeah. I think that's that's the goal. That's where you want to be. If it's not that, I think it can be really challenging. Because like I said, you can you can be doing amazing work, but if it's not getting out there, then it doesn't necessarily matter how amazing it is. And you, you're definitely doing yourself a disservice. I guess Early on, there must be if that's your area of expertise, and like you mentioned, some people won't be aware of the work that you're actually doing until you educate them. So, how would you yep. go about building a sports scientist, building their visualization and presenting sort of skills for athletes or other pr- practitioners, coaches? Tech- yeah, I think. Yep, yep. I think first thing is work with your stakeholders, which if you're in a sporting team, might be a physio, might be an SSC. So, I think having a discussion with them before you go and build anything. So obviously store your data well, but then have a, have a conversation with someone to say, oh, like, what, what do you want to see? Like, what, what in a perfect world, how, how are you managing? Like, what, like, I don't know, let's say when we're looking at someone's bench press, say, 
and we're, we're tracking them over time because we might want to see some changes, then it might be a conversation around, okay, like how, how would you look at that? Like, do you want to look that? Do you want to look at a session by session basis? Are you happy to take? Do you want their total volume for a week? Do you want their max for a week? Do you want their number of reps for a week? Kind of try and be as precise, I think might be the word. Try, try and be as in detailed as you can be in that conversation around trying to get someone like your stakeholder, trying to get them involved in thinking about the data process, I think is really important. And yeah, fostering that buy in because. It's all well and good to just go and build what you think is important, but then if that's not what the other person values or not what the other person uses, then they're probably not going to look at it. So I think that that's probably the first quarter call. And then the other one I think is just to be be comfortable being uncomfortable having people look at your work. I think like if you if you can't get that, so my first first quarter call first. Oh, what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? My first thing that I would say to do is mm-hmm. have a conversation with your stakeholder. That's mm-hmm. the best thing you can do. If you can't do that, just build something and get it in front of someone and get feedback on it, I think, and just be happy to wear whatever the feedback may be. I think there's definitely been times when I've, I've built stuff, which I think is great, but I've got feedback on it and it's like, oh, this is actually no good. Like this doesn't help me at all. So then it's then it's like, well, you've got to kind of suck it up a little bit because it's like at the end of the day, like it might not be me who's using the data. Yeah, I'm responsible for collecting it, storing it, reporting on it, but then I'm not the one using it to then drive a decision. So mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, I've just got to suck it, suck it up. Even though I say I disagree, you obviously have a conversation around why you disagree or, or why you think your way is better or not not be an idiot about it, but have a, have that conversation. But then if if the conversation lands on you having to change your dashboard and you you may be having to build something that you think is suboptimal, then you you just do it because the best dashboards and the best data is data that gets used. So if it doesn't get used, then it's no good to anyone. So I guess being a bit fluid in that space and be happy happy to get feedback on things, I think is important. And last question on the topic, and then we'll, we'll start to wrap it up, mate. I know it's been a, a, well over an hour of your time and you're up north getting beautiful weather, much better than us yep. uh, Melbournians down here. So Make the most of the afternoon, but performance analysts, like from a notational analysis point of view, how does that yep. sort of where does that fit? Do you see that as more? It's a coach, it's a technical, you know, assistant to serve the tactical technical side, or is it part of the sort of as a sports science sort of banner? How does that all fit in the, from an AFL? Uh, from an AFL point, of view, I think AFL might be a touch different. I think they the AFL probably separate the roles a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. So the AFL probably have these technical analysts who. Mm-hmm. Its job is purely, well, not purely, but mainly around vision, tactics, making edits, helping coaches. So I think AFL definitely splits the roles a lot more. But in saying that, I, I dare say most technical analysts or technical performance analysts in AFL probably have done a sports science degree. And yeah. So I think the, the AFL tends to try and, I'm not sure why it works like that in football departments, but they tend to seem to shift them apart definitely a lot of overarching principles outside of purely vision obviously still with the vision stuff you still want to collect it well you still want to store it well you still want to put it in a way that's accessible and usable so all those things are the same it's just probably working with the coach to get that domain expertise definitely around the the data side of things so stuff like match statistics tactical statistics stuff like that 
I think can be operated in the same data principles. Oh, like I'll work with our analysts because the best thing we can do is outside of managing players and that whole part of the program. The other part we do is we're trying to match up what we do on field with the physical attributes required to play. So it's being able to identify, well, can we or can we predict physical attributes that are going to determine success? And success might look like different things for different players on the field. So for a key defender, success is going to look different to them on the field, to an inside midfielder, same to maybe a high half forward. There's going to be positional dependent or individual dependent success on field, which we measure through football statistics. And so we want to try and, I guess, merge our physical data. We want to make sure that we're preparing athletes to to succeed and so trying to develop and I guess try and cross-pollinate your data where you can because the, at the end of the day, the biggest thing is football performance. Like You want to make them better players and so you want to better, better equip them to probably the first thing I think you want to do is you want to equip them to train as much as they can to get better. So we're mm-hmm. trying to build robustness mm-hmm. and that ties back to the very first overarching thing of consistency and you get consistency through being robust and, and being able to turn up and train, which then if you can train more, then you're going to become a better player because you're having more opportunity to get better, to, to learn and, and to be better. And, and then we're building physical attributes because by the time they're playing in the AFL, chances are physically they're probably pretty good generally. Mm. Uh, like if, if you're playing in the AFL, you, you must be at some level of, of competence in your physical qualities to be able to play. So it's like chasing Chasing those gains might be marginal for some people, but again, might be important. So then it's kind of tying together that idea of success and how we measure success for an individual on the field, tying that back to physical attributes and saying, well, what, what can we change? Like, well, where, what physical attribute can we cherry pick to improve? Where, where are we going to get the biggest bang for your buck? The whole idea of, of physical strength is one that we've spoken about a lot around is obviously there's a minimum level of strength required, but like how strong do you need to be to be successful in the AFL? Is there a tipping point where you might be too strong and it may be detrimental to performance? So like what that sweet spot looks like for mm. an individual at a moment in time, because it might look different for a young player versus an old player, and it's obviously going to look different for positions. So, and it all comes back to data and information. And so like if a player is unsuccessful on the field, so let's say that they're playing poorly, but they're super, super strong in a gym, and it's like, okay, well, like then something's amiss, like it's not quite marrying up. What is it? What can we do? Let's look at the information to then get to a discussion and decision. So yeah. it all it all definitely ties in. But the AFL yeah. the AFL does tend to separate the analysts, but I think better football departments will try and get them intertwining, I think. Yeah. And so then then you try and you try and merge your football department and or your coaching department and your performance department. And you're trying to make this one beautiful kind of collaborating unit, which not always going to be that. But if everyone's at least aiming for that, then you can't generally get there. That makes a lot of sense. Always a, a fair bit to unpack there. No doubt the listeners will, will probably listen to this one yeah. twice through. There's, thanks for it's all gone, the information, mate. It's, uh, it's gone for ages. Sorry, mate. I'm just no, I'm dribbled on. It's something you're clearly passionate about, which is what we like to see, mate. What about a pet peeve? Anything in your professional life that's a pet uh, peeve of yours that buys you? <laughs> It's funny. We have a, a good a good friend of the podcast, can we say, is is pencil, um, yes. and I, I often talk to him a, a lot about this. And it's the whole ideology of people being so busy. Uh, it's, uh, it's my pet peeve in all of life is people complaining about 
busyness. Everyone who's existing is busy. Everyone has stuff to do and every, everyone is busy. So there's no need to complain about your busyness. I think you can be... Ex- did, that, did that begin once you got through that three-year campaign of doing your PhD work? Yeah, oh, maybe, maybe, I was a, a bit, maybe I was the I was the initial sook. Maybe I was complaining how busy I was. But nah, I think that's, that's tricky. I, I, it maybe stems from working full-time and doing my PhD as well. It, you get a bit frustrated when people say they're busy when you're you can genuinely... Get plenty done. Uh, stop, talk, stop talking about it. Just just go and do it. Just do it. The, the old Nike, maybe. Uh, yeah, just do it. Some, yeah. yeah. yeah hey. Well, they're a reasonably successful company. Uh, I love it, mate. Well, yeah, that's a, a great one to to finish on for those that want to get stuck into it. If you tuned in halfway through, make sure to listen to the whole episode or live on our YouTube channel until we post on our podcast. Highly recommend for, for athletes, parents of young athletes, and, of course, high-performance staff. Make sure to listen into this one. And for those that have any follow-up questions, Mars, where's the best place to get in contact, mate? I'm I'm loosely on Twitter. I'm more of a Twitter watcher than poster, but I'm yep. around. But yeah, probably just email is is probably the best. Yeah, which I'm sure I don't know if you can put it somewhere. Yeah, that. Um, well, yeah, add, add it, yeah, add it in. Yeah, happy to happy to chat. Yeah, to anyone. Oh, you're a good man. Awesome. Well, very good. Yeah, thanks again for jumping on and sharing with us your, your time and your experiences and, and some stories in there too. It was yeah, fascinating to, to listen in and find out a little bit more about your career, mate, and also on the on the topic of applying sports science in the AFL. For those, our next live chat is with Vince Kelly. They'll be at 1 o'clock next Thursday, the 1st of December this year, and we've got three more episodes before we wrap it up where we'll have a month off the podcast. So make sure to tune in, send in your questions via our socials, and I'll see you guys on the next one. Thanks again, Muzz. Thanks, Jack. If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content, such as a Q&A segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from the Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, I suppose it is... Um... It'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then game changes, yeah, game changes whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you Rama to, to ask your question mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. 
Um, mate, my, my question to you was you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat. Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it, yeah, certainly, yeah, has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose one thing I might mention is, is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just, yeah, opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble. Um, yeah. So that's that's been huge. Um, I think I wish back then when I was younger, I asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things. Mm. I think I was a bit single-minded back then and, um, you know, I thought there was one way of doing things and, um, if I kind of didn't have that fear of, you know, asking a silly question or fear of judgment, it would have got me a lot further and I probably would have learned a lot quicker, um. And yeah. and yeah, like just, yeah, being open to sort of different things because um, you never know what you might find. It's just, yeah, there's so many people, like great people out there, knowledgeable people to learn off. And there's plenty more where that came from. If you would like to learn more, then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes. Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.